I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. We are joined by Angela Hartman right here in the HRM uh, over the bridge over in Dartmouth. The famously known HRM. HRM. <laughs> um, and uh, this is going to be really interesting because we're kind of covering a, a topic that we haven't really covered on the show before. Um, we're going to get into uh, what I've just recently learned is referred to as body-focused repetitive behaviors, BFRBs. Um, Angela is the founder of Skin Picking Support, which is a community that provides resources for those with excoriation disorder and other BFRBs. Um, and Angela, I know that you have, uh, you have a history of dermatillomania, which I, I hope I pronounced that right. Um, why don't you... Uh, first of all, introduce yourself to our listeners and and give us a little bit of insight. What what is a what is a BFRB? Hi, I just want to thank you guys for having me on. Uh, a BFRB, which is body focused repetitive behavior, is an act that somebody does compulsively towards themselves that causes damage to their body. Um, it is often confused with self-harming behaviors, which it is not because of its compulsive nature. Mm. And really I'm open for any questions about BFRBs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like uh, I feel like there's there's quite a quite a bit of them. Before we started recording, you were you were specifically saying, look, I I'm, I might not be able to pronounce all of them. They they do have they're, they're quite um, I'm looking at a list of like some different BFRBs right now and the names are a mouthful for sure. Der- dermatillomania, which is um, skin picking. Uh, you've got, uh, there's mouth ones. So you've got uh, Moriscatio baracum, which is like cheek biting. I actually went to school. One mm. of my best friends in school, she would always bite her cheek when she was like, oh, interesting. anxious. Um, I accidentally bite my cheek all the time. and Accidentally, it's, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. And it's not, a, so, not compulsively. <laughs> no, but it's so annoying. Like having that. It is horrific. Like, because when you yeah. bite it once, then yeah. like well, there's you, a propensity to bite it again and because you're prone, it's swollen. You and myself as well are prone to... Um, we have big mouths. Uh, uh Canker source. Oh yeah, Maybe. right. Which yep. as soon as you bite it once, canker source. boom, canker source. So that's cheek biting. There's also one specifically for inner lip biting. There's one for tongue biting. Uh, you've got uh, nail biting, nail picking. Um, I'm not gonna. I, I'm not gonna try the names. They're they're so hard. Try, that, just try. Just try one anyway. Uh, yeah, okay. Just, by, just go by behaviors. Yeah, there we go. Here, here's one. I'll try this one. Rhinotillomania, which is compulsive nose picking. That sounds like. Oh, I have that. I have that too. <laughs> I mean, you don't have that, but you do pick your nose a lot. Um, there's uh, there's a tri- uh, a trichotillomania, which is hair pulling. 
Okay, that was what you mentioned before, and I yep. thought that that sounded familiar. Yep. Um, there's also um, this one. This one's easy to say. Mucus fishing syndrome. What do you think that is? Uh, that, well, I would have guessed Ooh, nose picking know. if you didn't say that already. Yeah, but yeah. it's compulsion to remove or fish strands of mucus from the eye. Oh, oh yeah. I do that to my dog. Same. Yeah, uh, I want to ask Not Angela like right off the bat Not because like yep. obviously so we've we've already now like related to some of these things in an un, in a not compulsive mm -hmm. way. So like we can understand what these things are. Yeah. But I'm I'm curious like I think about something like nail biting for example, mm -hmm. which like a lot of people do. What's the difference between like like nail biting but like compulsive nail biting that it would be considered a BFRB? Like how does that? What is the difference between? the habit and then the, comp the compulsion? Mm. So that's a great question because grooming behaviors are normal behaviors that we all take part in, like whether it's, to, or most of us, at least like 99% of us, some people just absolutely don't care of getting that pimple out or getting that thick hair out. But mm. a lot of us to try to keep kept and, and a have a certain appearance, we like to to do that type of self-grooming and remove all the, um, sorry, I'm actually really nervous right now because That's you guys okay. just, you yeah. know, you, you guys have your stuff together. So I'm just like, <laughs> oh my gosh. No, it's, you're doing we great. We have it together far less than you. <laughs> um, so, so having a, a BFRB and having it compulsive versus normal is really about how much it affects your life mm -hmm. negatively so there there was there's been people i know who picked worse than me but it actually didn't affect them so they didn't mm -hmm. feel the need to wear makeup and i found that very interesting so the to the depth that affected me emotionally with the shame and the embarrassment is really how it had its deepest impact on mm -hmm. me but okay. certainly there's dangers to some bfrbs as well like especially yeah. with picking when you're, you're at risk for infection yeah and, totally. and is there something and 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 obviously there's there seems to be something in these in in this range of of conditions that is where you are really not in the driver's seat of choosing to continue or to not continue with it like mm. i used to bite mm -hmm. my i used to bite my nails all the time but then it started to hurt my teeth and I didn't, and I just went, I'm not, I'm not going to bite my teeth anymore. So I'm in the driver's seat of making that decision. But if I, but if that was a compulsive behavior, um, you know, falling in the list of the category of, of all these BFRBs, you know, that just because it hurts my teeth, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be in the, in the, in control of, of just going, I'm going to stop now. Wait, biting your nails hurt your teeth? Yeah. It started to like, it started to, um, it started to like almost feel like a little nerve pain on the tip of my big. Uh, like wow. uh, like your chewing teeth. Wow, Ouch. interesting. Yeah, or your or whatever your front two front teeth. Yeah, are. Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, that would that would make me stop for sure. Teeth yeah. pain. Um, uh, Angela, can it, you? It's interesting that yeah, you yeah, engaged ahead. in that as a self soothing behavior, um, and but in that it didn't become compulsive actually. So the fact it got so extreme and it it worked well for you to cause, but it caused that much pain on your tooth is amazing that you were just able to stop really and maybe that's coming from someone who has a bfrb i don't know but right, but to right. see like that for, for it to have that effect on your body like and then to be able to just make that decision is is really yeah. fascinating like i guess why why would you describe how would you describe that it 
what did it do to serve you, I guess, at when the I, time? When I think back about it, because <clears throat> I did it for years and years, like probably, I don't know, from the time I was probably like on t- maybe 12 to 20 or so, I probably, I probably, I probably never cut, I never, I probably never trimmed my nails with nail clippers. I probably, I just, and I think I just saw it as like, I could just bite them. Like why mm-hmm. trim them with a trimmer when I can bite you can, them? You can trim them anywhere, I can trim anytime, them anywhere I want. <laughs> yeah. And then when it started hurting my teeth, I was just like, oh, okay, that, that sucks. Yeah. I really don't like that. And then you transitioned really like to only trimming them at the gate, uh, but waiting for your flight, which, is, uh, which, is, which is probably more problematic than if it would have <laughs> turned into an obsessive compulsive right. disorder That's right. because it's uh, affecting everybody else but you. Yes, thank I, you, Jeremy. Uh, um, <laughs> I, I, wanted to, I wanted to ask Angela, I had... Um, it's it's interesting starting to think about some of these things because when you're talking about that, like you you use the term self soothing behavior, and mm-hmm. I I don't I I don't have any experience with um, BFRBs myself, but um, when I was 16, one of my really good friends um, was hit by a car and and died, and I Sorry. I, I yeah thanks I I sat by her in in like all four classes that I was in that year and and I was away when the thing when when it happened and when I went back to school sitting in class with an empty chair next to me was like incredibly hard and yeah. when I was going through that grieving process um I had this pen and her uh her number that she wasn't she played on my hockey team too and and her number was 14 in hockey so I drew her number on my hand with pen and I was just like sitting thinking about her and I just kept drawing until like it started to bleed and then it started to scratch open and and to the point where I like carved her number into my hand. And it was like it was like incredibly soothing doing that. Like it and and like that would be like, I guess, like this, like an idea, like it would be like self-harm, I suppose, in a sense. And um, anyway, it's yeah, I, I think th- what you're describing sounds a little more self self harmish, but I just I want to say like I that's really heartbreaking. I'm, I'm sorry you had to go through that. That's that's mm-hmm. devastating. You don't expect having to experience something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I I appreciate you saying that. Um, it makes me think of <laughs> like it makes me think of how these like how like grief sort of manifests into these like physical sort of like um mm. obsessions or compulsions with your body like you're doing this thing because there's this like deeper thing behind that that's causing you to you know sort of act or do this thing in a certain way and i'm wondering like like is that in terms of like t- talking about bfrbs like where is it that there's this sort of like anxiety or this underlying feeling that's manifesting in these actions is that what's mm. at the core of of these compulsions um, I don't want to speak for everybody because I'm not quite sure and the science isn't out, but it seems like a lot of it has to do with anxiety. Um, some people, their BFRB happens as the result of an onset of a trauma similar to what you described. Um, and other people, they just um, they just already have the propensity to do so, whether or not there's the genetic link which apparently one in four people who have a BFRB have a family member, a close relative that also engages in one. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of people actually are just highly sensitive and have kind of sensory type of issues, sensory processing type 
issues and there's a lot of talk about like ADHD and autism mm -hmm. being comorbidities mm -hmm. along mm -hmm. with things like I'm diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder mm -hmm. that sort of was you were talking about the kind of underlying fact but I had kind of always picked my skin and mm -hmm. it but it got really bad like in grade five just before I went through a traumatic event and then like in my grade five and my grade six photos I'm wearing this ugly ass turtleneck that <laughs> like just straight out of the 90s and <laughs> And it was just, to, I remember at the time I chose to wear it because I only had two turtlenecks at the time, but it covered the marks that I created on my upper chest. And mm. like, this would be 10 years old and then 11 years old. So that was pretty early, but it was grade eight that my skin picking had gotten really bad on my legs. And I covered them from the time I was 14 until pretty much after I received therapy, which I ended up getting because I was contacted by the American show, The Doctors, to be on in 2015. And I met a BFRB expert and ended up getting 12 weeks of therapy with her, wow. a combination of um, cognitive behavioral therapy and acceptance commitment therapy. How, and how did, it made a world of a difference. My Sorry? How, how did they find you? Um, because of the advocacy that I've been doing over the years, I think primarily my my memoir, Forever Mark, A Dermatillomania Diary, I remember in 2009, I, I did a CTV interview promoting it, but it was the first time on television anyone had ever spoken about this condition. And really, there was nobody else at the time. So it was kind of like slim pickings. If, I mean, right. just don't mind the pun behind that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about, I feel like, I feel like stigma and judgments are going to be something that come up a lot in this conversation. And I'm, when you were talking about <clears throat> being grade five, grade, grade six, and then into, you know, your junior high years and covering up the, the marks on your skin, like did, what were sort of the, what were what were some of the things that the 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 challenges that you faced like with your peers in terms of mm. whether it was from you know peers as in you know, people your age at school or or teachers seeing you know maybe seeing um, marks and 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 maybe questioning you about it or or you know being concerned about where what like what was going on with you. Yeah, um, actually, I didn't have many people pointed out to me because I was very good at covering it. It wasn't always as easy to cover it on my face, but I knew a lot of people would just kind of assume it was acne. But to be mm. honest, when I was 18, I actually didn't even know why I was picking at my skin. I didn't have the vocabulary to understand mental health and what that really meant. Like I knew what depression was and that was, you know, pretty much it. So I didn't know about like anxiety. I didn't know about compulsion. I, well, I knew about some compulsions, but I didn't think that it could be something that you could end up doing towards yourself. So I really didn't understand what, why I was doing it. But I ended up canceling a lot of outings with people over the years. I ended up skipping school because I didn't want people to see me on really bad days. And ultimately, I ended up dropping out of university, not being able to work by the time I was 20. and. I was picking for eight hours some nights, full on like 11 p.m. 
to 7 a.m. And I would stop because 7 a.m. I had to give my diabetic cat his insulin <laughs> at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. every day. So, but it was that it ended up getting that badly out of control where I would just start at my face, go down all the way down to my ankles, and then everything would kind of resettle. And then I would start again from the top and go down. And it because I just felt like I had to keep smoothing things out. I had to keep finding things to mm. fix on my skin. And I knew it was irrational, but I also didn't understand like why it was why my brain worked the way it did, especially because a part of it has always been there. And are you are you when when you're going, when you're doing when you're doing that <clears throat> and it's and it's something that's lasting several hours. Is it something that is, it, it sounds like it, it, towards the end of your description there, it sounds like it's something that you are pretty intensely focused on. Like it's not something that you are um, mm -hmm. sort of passively doing without your knowledge. Like, like it doesn't sound like you're doing mm -hmm. it while you're watching TV and it's almost like it's, you don't even yeah, know. Yeah. It sounds like you're pretty focused and intently, uh, it's intently, you have, there's an intention behind it. Yeah, it's definitely important that you bring that up that there's, I think it was just like in the last year, it was recognized through research that there are two different subsets of picking, whereas one of them's like the automatic where if you're at the computer or whatever, watching TV, where your mind is focused on that, so your hands are doing whatever else. Um, but what was I going to say? Sorry, I lost my train of thought Just about that. About like um, about it being automatic versus being sort of like a passive, um, uh, or sorry, being being sort of like passive, like you're doing it automatically without without really realizing it, or versus versus doing it with like intention, like really focusing on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah the the part about focusing is that it's like you go into this, and you you kind of mentioned on another question that you touched on before. Uh, what's considered to be like a trance-like state. And it's not trance-like as in hypnotic, but you're able to enter this like calming place in your mind, like mm. almost meditative mm -hmm. and, and where you can just focus on things and you can, like for me, it was also a matter of being able to process the emotions and events of a day by the end of the day, like think everything over and just as a way to process and maybe as a, as a safe way, because things are overwhelming. Mm -hmm. do Brian, you, do you, you mentioned the other day, just on that, <laughs> on that, you mentioned the other day about like transition time Yeah, and, yeah. and, and doing something, doing something in between, you know, maybe your work and like an activity later with Maddie or with us where you, where you really need a time where everything kind of like absorbs that mm -hmm. you've done in the day. And something needs to like land there. It almost sounds like it, it because I, I think something that you mentioned earlier with the, about it being like a soothing behavior, something mm -hmm. that's like something that's comforting. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. Well, I was I was thinking when you, when you said that too, um, that idea of it being meditative. I wonder, like, because what I'm hearing too is that is that the compulsion compulsion to pick is sort of a um, a uh, coping mechanism in some cases for mm -hmm. other traumas or these other feelings that you're feeling. And, um, when you, when you said it's, it's a sort of meditative experience, I really identify with that in the sense that like, I have a lot of activities in my life that I do. And when my brain feels like it's in overdrive because I have ADHD and when my brain feels like mm -hmm. it's in overdrive or I'm, I'm close to burning out. If I go and play soccer, I feel a thousand times better mm -hmm. because 
when I'm there playing that game, it's this like singular focus. I can't like, I, and, and partly because I don't have my phone and like I've, I've found that, you know, through going through therapy recently that my phone is a source of a lot of anxiety because mm. I'm constantly connected. And so when you talk about this idea of how picking can be so soothing and meditative in that sense, I can understand that from the perspective that you're, you're just singularly focused on this thing that you're doing and your brain is focused on yeah. that rather than spending time thinking mm-hmm. about all the other sort of trauma and grief that you've yet to process. Does mm-hmm. that like, does that idea sort of connect with you? Well, what's, what's really interesting is I noticed after I went into recovery that doing advocacy was much harder than before. Yeah. And that's because I was able to drown the anxiety in my picking. Mm. And now that I don't do that, not having that outlet just increases my baseline anxiety in general. So mm. doing things like this is actually a lot harder than it used to be before yeah, I got yeah, therapy. Totally. Right. It's kind of like you I've also Yeah, it's it's kind of like Sorry? it's kind of like you have I mean, you have your own tools in your toolbox to 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 cope with and manage that anxiety that you're feeling. But then you realize, oh, one of these tools actually has all these other side effects for me. It's like you want to hammer in a nail, but instead of using a hammer to hammer in a small nail, you're using a, a fucking mallet that's just like not only hammering in the nail, but it's smashing all the framework around that nail yeah. and just blasting it in. Mm. And so there's all these like unintended sort of side effects that you have from using that tool. And yeah. now the tool is gone from your toolbox and you have to find these other tools to try to try to manage that. And it can be really challenging. Well, one thing that I'm kind of curious to... No, sorry, j- jump in there. Oh, I was also going to say, I think also like my increase of anxiety, like just having an interview with, with like three men is just kind of a little overwhelming. Like I know I, I've read, I've read a little bit about you guys and congratulations, Taylor, on being a new dad. Oh, thank you. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Five it? months, five months, five <laughs> months new. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Change changes your life for sure. So oh I, I yeah. as, a, as a mom with a baby who's two and a half, who was born five weeks before the pandemic and I needed hip surgery. It was like, here you go. Here's a new baby. So I, I I understand a lot of the the transition of how difficult it is, but it's very rewarding. Oh my God. I love it. It's the best. Um, uh, Angela, I I would love to, I would love to kind of get a little bit more insight into the earlier days of, of when you were, kind of managing the uh, dermatillomania and and especially like the the part about um the part about like masking it or hiding it really well um I, mm-hmm. i'm 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 curious about like do you remember do you recall a time uh prior to prior to writing the memoir um where you had conversations with people in your life about uh the the compulsion to pick and who were those people that you had those conversations with and what did those conversations look like? Oh, we're getting real deep. Um, I would say the main, the first, the main conversations I had were with my mom and my sister because I was hogging up the bathroom. We had two bathrooms in our apartment, but I was always in the big one and I kept trying to use excuses like, you know, I'm having a big crap. I'm, you know, I'm getting ready to have a shower, trying to do all these things. But then when it's like hour after hour and then and then my family notices that my skin is red and I have spots, it, you know, 
my my mom would at the time and stuff like she, her she's totally changed now because i mean education and awareness does wonders but she was just like you know you're going to scar yourself and mm. you're not gonna like it and things like that it's like of course i know this but i i can't stop and i i couldn't explain why i couldn't stop because it's just so weird like your hand to your skin of course you can stop it's a choice right seems like mm. a choice so being able to ha have those conversations like I, I don't think I was really too serious because anytime I would bring it up, I had friends who unfortunately weaponized it against me. Like if I didn't want to do a, something that they did, like it's, oh, well, that's just because you're weird with your, you know, your picking or thing, like just weird things like that. Like just kind of using it against me. And it's mm. like, Oh, because well, you think you're having a bad day and something you don't want to go out. And I'm like, well, you know, that's my choice. And so it, it, it felt like it was more intrusive and almost infantilizing. I didn't have this experience with friends in particular. I know a lot of other people have where people just like kind of smack your hand. And I've, I've had this from other people, including doctors, well, a doctor just kind of slap your hand just for like sitting like this. Mm. You don't even have to be picking, but it's like, come on now like I even if I don't have like full control of what I'm doing it's not up it's not your duty to kind of reprimand me or you know it, it's just and those important those conversations are definitely important to have with family and yeah. friends to set those boundaries of what's okay to talk about and, and you know how to approach things and it, it hurts me if you say this this way or mm. like oh you're gonna make yourself ugly or you know just all the possibilities the fear of because a lot of people try to stop you from doing things because out of fear like oh gosh you're gonna get an infection stop doing that and mm -hmm. a whole bunch of things and so it's like it it's much more shameful when someone notices and like when I worked at when I was doing a cashier job as a teenager I learned very quickly that by being at the front desk that I would have people give me skin recommendations. And I was like 17 at the time, like these Whoa, grown ass right, adults right. coming up to me, giving me unsolicited advice while I'm just trying to do my job for minimum wage. <laughs> and yeah. I remember one person said, you would be pretty if your face didn't look like that. Mm, super constructive. And, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> And I, I had like another experience in grade nine, which was right before I went to into high school that summer where I had fallen. Well, I was doing hiking with a group and I fallen over an uprooted tree um, and I landed on part of the root that was sticking up on my knee and it slammed in and the facilitator person came up to me. And she said, I need to see your leg. I'm trained in first aid. And I kept saying, no, I was like, I will stand up. I will. And she's like, no, that was a, a big fall. And I wouldn't. She's like, you know, if you don't, if you don't lift your pant leg right now, I'm going to cut your pants. And kind of funny story. I was actually wearing my sister's pants that day. So I was like, <laughs> that is them. not yeah. going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would not be able to go home that day <laughs> with yeah. the pants looking like that. So I remember I raised them off of my left leg and the lady was kind of ho hovered over like just up to my knee. 
but then she was looked down it took a few seconds and when she saw my legs she just went oh and that was like just you know right before mm. i was going into high school mm. uh like in all so it's like i i learned that like for sure that if anyone saw my body or skin that that they would have the same reaction and yeah. i felt like you know a freak i felt like i couldn't control the mess on my body let alone the mess inside my head that was creating it Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. I, 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 I'm, I, th- so this leads me to my next point, which I think is, um, I think is a really valuable and, and kind of important piece. And I know, I know that like everybody is different. Everybody is unique. Um, and you know, you were speaking to like setting those boundaries and those boundaries are going to look completely different from one person to the next. But in, I guess maybe speaking personally for yourself, um, if someone's listening to this right now and they know somebody in their life who um, perhaps has a compulsion to pick and they haven't spoken to this person, but they've been thinking, you know, maybe I should say something to my pal or to my family mm-hmm. member. What, what are effective ways to speak to someone with this type of compulsion that won't be uh, alienating, that won't be, you know, causing shame um, that are just like effective ways to communicate with that person when you want to voice a concern? That's a really great question. I think there's a few ways to approach it, but really at the core of it, you have to approach it with kindness and acceptance. Mm. No matter bringing something up like that, like having a disorder, an isolating disorder like this, it to have someone mention it to you is like, it's it's like almost like oh my gosh i'm i'm caught i'm found out yeah so to immediately have that conversation i think it would be it would be important to expect that somebody may have their back raised a bit and be on the defensive because they may not even know what you're going to say following the hey can we talk about this um <laughs> but i think really it should be up to like friends and family and not so much about hey pushing to get help but just to let them know that there are other people in the world out there and there's organizations such as skin picking support. Mm. Um, There's also in Canada, we have the Canadian BFRB support network in Toronto. And really I think what, what brings, what brings people to to talking about it? I, I'm just thinking about when I was when I did have some friends later on, like in university, and it felt good to be able to talk to them. You know, you have to not be judgmental, and you have to mm. accept them, accept the person where they're at, no matter how bad the condition is. Instead, of, and I, I mean, I could list a whole bunch of things not to say, like, but you know, definitely don't focus on the appearance aspect of it, but you can say, I've noticed that you've been picking more, you've been pulling more, you've been biting more, 
or if you want to address the behavior itself, or if you just want to address to make sure everything's okay in that person's life. But really, when it comes to BFRBs, everything can be perfect in someone's life. They can be happy and everything can be going well, but they're still going to engage in the behavior because of the lot of the cognitive distortions that are already embedded that keep fueling the compulsion itself. Mm, mm-hmm. um, a question that I have that's sort of like adjacent to 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 the question that Jared just asked is like is something that I that I wonder about with a lot of the conversations that we have on the podcast where we are we are we are kind of always doing this like um, exercise with the people that we talk to to try and relate in a way that we in, in a sense or empathize in in a in a way and try to go try to understand the experience of some, that somebody else has had and and every so often i i i think i think oh is how helpful is that you know is that is it something that is helpful to the person that we're speaking with or the people that are listening that might deal with the same thing so when you know when you start talking about um compulsions and we offer up like, oh, I think I get it because I've dealt with, you know, this, or oh, I've bit, okay. I've bit, I've bitten my nails, or I get like, and I know this is going to be an, this is individual for, for for this is going to be unique to, to everybody, and people will feel different about it. But how does that does that make how how does that make you feel when when we do that, or when anybody else tries to do that? Does it make you feel like, oh, you don't get it? You know, I, or, or is it, or is it helpful and, and make you feel like you're understood? Like, where do you land on that? It, it can feel, it can sometimes feel a little minimizing, like, but I also feel like people who are trying to understand are trying to relate it to real life experiences. And mm-hmm. I definitely can appreciate that as well. So I think it really matters what the intent is behind it. Like if you're, gonna like really mock the disorder or something then yeah I'm not gonna have time for for anybody who's going to do that but if someone's really trying to understand like these are questions what you guys are asking is what everybody is asking or at least wants to know and it's really Mm -hmm. great that there's finally people asking those questions out loud Mm -hmm. it's interesting I I just uh got out of a therapy session half an hour before coming here today so some of the things that I took away from that are really on my mind right now. But um, one thing my therapist said was there is no black and white. Like there's nuance to everything in life. And like yeah. it, like it's always like, we're always trying as human beings to understand where we fit in the world and understand why things are the way they are and, and how they work. So like when I tell her, when I hear you ask that question, I totally understand what you're saying. And I think of my experience with ADHD and like, when you were, or Jaren, to be fair, Jaren, I think you have ADHD, but um, but like when you guys try to relate to me, I feel on one part, like really seen by that. I'm like, oh, fuck, yes, you're trying to understand. It makes me feel um, really good that you're trying to understand. But then sometimes the way that you phrase something, you're like, I get it. It's kind of like this. But in my head, I'm like, no, it's not like that. Then I also feel like the total opposite of that. I'm like, oh, you don't fucking get it at all. And so I don't think, and like, this is my personal experience, but like, I don't think there is always a one, you know, I don't think it's always black and white. I think there Mm -hmm. is this sort of nuance to that thing. And I think that. It all Um, depends on what type of mood you're in too. Like some days you might just be like, oh, that's really great. I want that support. And other, uh, other days you're just going to be in such a shit mood that you're just like, don't even try. 
Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's partly the responsible of us to understand our own feelings about these things, which can be very difficult, especially if you're trying to do this on your own. But like, you know, it's not my like it's I can't control what you say. And and like, Taylor, if you try to relate to me about my ADHD, your intent is to to try to understand me. It's It comes from a positive place. Mm. And so if that makes me feel a certain way that is like bad or really good, it should be my responsibility to understand why that is. And if something you say makes me feel bad for some reason, then it should also be my responsibility to tell you that yeah. and like mm. try to try to like understand. I mean, we've we've had this conversation about ADHD where you're like, you know, try a to do list. And I'm like, well, that doesn't fucking work for yeah, me yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I think and, and, and to that point, we're in like, I think as a as a whole society, especially in primarily in North America, we're in this, we're sort of in this, uh, we're in this transition where like we're balancing intent versus, um, perception, like the, the intent of somebody's actions or words versus how they are received on the other side. And those are, those often, I would say more often than not don't line up Mm -hmm. how, how something is intended and how something is received. Mm -hmm. And then the communication from both parties is missing a lot of the time and then which leads to a lot of friction. Yeah. I feel like we have this with this problem with our parents all the time because um, our parents come and like, this is like, I'm generalizing here, but I know my relationship with my parents, sometimes they'll react to situations in a way where they want to protect or like they'll come in and they'll say, Oh, I don't like when you do that this way because it makes me feel like you're going to end up in this situation or whatever. And their intent is to be protective as a parent, but really the way that that comes across is in this way that feels like they don't respect your autonomy or your freedom or your own, your own decision. So when like I, but like it's my responsibility, I feel as a person to like educate, you know, my mom in that situation to say, Hey, what you just said made me feel this way. Yeah. And, um, this is why it makes me feel this way. And I would prefer that next time, if your intent is to do this thing, that you would be better to accomplish it by mm-hmm. approaching the situation in this way. To that point of educating, um, I would love to kind of dive into uh, the memoir that you wrote uh, that came out back in 2009, uh, mm-hmm. Forever Marked, uh, Dermatillomania Diary. How old were you when you decided to write the the memoir? And, and also, what was the catalyst to kind of push you to commit to doing something so I mean I'm assuming something so challenging you know we 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 oftentimes speak about how it really takes a lot of courage to put yourself forward and talk about something that's so personal and especially in a creative way and and put that out to the world so like what 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 was the deciding factor to like take that leap Um, I think it really came down to a few things, but it really came like, I mean, I ended up adversity. I couldn't work anymore. I was picking too much. It wasn't something I could hide anymore. It wasn't something makeup could even hide on my face. I wasn't in like, you know, the, well, I guess that technically still, I could have had acne as like early twenties, but I, I knew I was like this, this is destroying my life. I don't, I don't even know where I'm going to go in the future. This, you know, it's taken pretty much everything from me. And a couple of years earlier, when I was 18, which is now half a lifetime ago, I did try to end my life because 
I was so alone. There was no diagnosis. I had like a horrible therapist at the time. Um, and I, yeah, I was just completely alone. I tried to hide what I was going through from people because I didn't want them to think that I was like a freak and I wanted to be able to fit in and blend in. And I didn't want people to know that there was something quote unquote wrong with me. So I tried to hide it and it made a lot of, it made a lot of my interactions with people, I guess, more superficial in that way, because I kept them at arm's length, not with them, not wanting them to to figure out what was going on with me. And mm. uh, a lot of people, they, they kind of noticed over the years, but just never really knew what it was that I was hiding. Mm -hmm. I, but other... I, I guess I, I, I think though what really, what really made, made me put it out there was just that I was angry ultimately that there was no information out there. <laughs> I had heard that there was like, it was considered like a symptom of another disorder, but I was angry that it had taken so long for me to, to hear, like when I had gone through the mental health child system and everything and every, and they all downplayed what was going on and always focused that I could keep my grades up. And that mm. would just seem to be the only thing they cared about. And I was, I was mad. And I, and like when I looked online, which I mean, in 2009, there wasn't much information. There was, I remember like, I think it was like two Google pages of information. And some of them were just like offshoots of random skin picking together, words together. Mm. Um, but I just, I felt like no one should have to feel like they want to end their lives because of something that they can't control mm, yeah, something and, that they would choose to not do and i i didn't want anybody else if there was anybody else out there to ever have to go through what i did yeah which which there most certainly are those people right and one of the things that i i thought kind of um kind of fascinating in in some of the notes that you sent to us in prep for this uh, conversation was that um there's there's a really big need for treatment providers in canada um, you'd mentioned that there's yeah. currently less than 10 people in Canada that provide treatment for, um, for, uh, BFRBs and, um, yes. and which, you know, that, that's a, that, that seems like an issue and it seems like there's, there's most certainly a need for more of those providers, but in the very least mm -hmm. there's folks like you who are actually putting out, um, resources and, and offering support for those people who might feel so, so alone and so isolated in that, um, the the other thing that I really want to touch on before we before we come up to time is um, is your story of recovery because you you had kind of mentioned it earlier, you know after releasing the doc, the uh, the memoir um, you ended up going on uh, a television show called The Doctors in 2015 where you got help from uh, from expert Karen Pickett uh, very. Funny it's, last name for it is a really she was helping yeah, with yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um what she, the, she's <laughs> aware of the irony yeah. <laughs> I hope so what um <laughs> what did recovery look like for you and and you know um and and in general what does recovery look like for for anybody that that is going through uh, uh recovery for a body focused repetitive behavior recovery is not a matter of when it comes to BFRBs, it's not like when you look at the framework of abstinence, like with alcohol, where it's all or nothing, um, you're going to pick because it's or pull because they are normal grooming behaviors. It's whether or not you get caught up in them and it the obsessive thoughts behind them or that keep drawing you towards your skin or yourself. 
So it, as long as you're able to, to manage that without giving into it, that's one thing. But even if you do end up giving into it, it's okay because it's really, there's a, a phrase that we love using in the BFRB community of progress, not perfection, because we're gonna have to live with ourselves forever. And for a lot of people, when it's taken so many years, like mine developed in childhood, I had traumas that exacerbated it. it it's not going to go like just absolutely go away and be deprogrammed with therapy from my mind. Um, it, it's always going to be, I think, something that that kind of come. It, it'll probably come and go because there's even times now in my recovery that it it coming comes and goes where mm -hmm. I but there's also a lot of times where I'm just like fixating on my eyebrows or something and I just don't engage. And, but I, I consider that to still be engaging because mm -hmm. my mind is going there mm -hmm. instead of being free of it. So, but really I, I, I like just benefiting from having clear skin for the most part. Like, I mean, I wore makeup before to hide myself. Whereas now it's like, I'll, if I wear makeup, all I have to do is put just like one thin layer on and it feels like everything's covered. And it's like, wow, that's, I'm still amazed by that because for mm. so many years, it was just like everything was flaky. Everything was crusty, not covering exactly. And I'm just like, wow, this makeup is so awesome, but it's just store brand stuff. <laughs> it's mm. like eight bucks. Mm. So I, I really, oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to keep. I was just going to keep rambling. So, <laughs> well, what one thing that I that I think is kind of uh, just to come back to that 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 piece about a lack of um, a lack of resources for treatment, um, and mm -hmm. you know, I I we had mentioned that there's less than ten people in Canada that can actually offer treatment for folks who are struggling with with this disorder, and. Um, it made me think about like how prevalent is this, and and I'm I'm on the Wikipedia page for body focused repetitive behavior right now, and um, it's it's quite staggering. Um, uh, BFRBs are among the most poorly understood, mixed diagnosed, and untreated groups of disorders. BFRBs may affect at least one out of twenty people. Whoa. These collections of symptoms have been known for a number of years, but only recently have appeared in widespread medical literature. Uh, trichotillomania alone is believed to affect 10 million people in the United States. Wow. Which, you know, when you take those numbers and those stats and you stack it up to less than 10 people in Canada who are available to, to offer any kind of um, relief to this is, is that's a bit, it's a bit mind numbing. Like that's, that, that's really, that's really fucking wild. Um, so again, I've been I've been working for years towards getting professionals trained, and I really hope I can focus a lot of my advocacy on that even more now, because especially with the pandemic, I being the moderator of a lot of online forums before I created the skin picking support support group, um, there were a lot of people during the pandemic, um, during the second wave. That's when so many people were trying to join for support because the pandemic made everything so much worse. So we need these supports now more than ever. Mm -hmm. So all professionals need to do to get trained is go to TLC Foundation for BFRB's website. And they have a professional training institute where they teach either in person or through a 13-hour DVD course 
they tr they <laughs> train professionals who have at least a master's or higher how to treat BFRBs through evidence-based mm. research and science developed by Dr. Charles Mansueto, who's really a pioneer in the community. Mm. And are the are the are the people who are trained and the people that will that would and will be trained, are they are these um psychiatrists psychologists or are they or are they mds like who are the people that would that would uh that would like tack this on to their to their training um i believe it can start uh on like kind of the lowest rung as i think masters of social work you can mm -hmm. you can obtain that certificate and course or i think it can also go towards if you're a student in either of those it can go towards some learning credits um, I, I'm not quite sure. I know it used to work like that, but, um, yeah. So really anybody in who treats, it's more mental health focused, I believe, than it is more, more generalized information yeah. based, but, but yeah, so you, all you need to do as a professional is go to the website or if, go to my website, skinpickingsupport.com. I have links of how to get professionals trained under yeah. an FAQ under that website. Um, to be able to, because we we really do need the support. Like, mm -hmm. um, we have a bunch of support groups across Canada, and I say we because I used to be part of the Canadian BFRB support network in Toronto. But I mean, being in Nova Scotia, it's a little hard to stay connected. So, mm. um, I kind of ended up doing my own thing with advocacy afterwards. But they're a really great resource to check out to to find out where the um or what professionals there are in Canada mm. available and, um oh, I also right. run I wanted to mention um I run a group called BFRB Halifax it's been kind of inactive with the pandemic but it's just for people in Nova Scotia uh, to come together in or from Nova Scotia to come together and talk about their experiences with BFRBs yeah. and there's I think there's like 35 of us right now but I, everyone pretty much has the same type of opinion that every time they go see somebody, they don't know what what the BF what a BFRB is, don't know how to treat it, try to do like just the tradi traditional CBT methods that don't work or maybe a little bit helpful, and then they fall back. Mm -hmm. And we really need professionals to understand the core of or just like all the mechanics behind a BFRB. And, and I know this training program is something that my therapist had taken part in as well. So, and I, I just, I, I wish everybody in Canada had the chance to get the opportunity that I did to go on the doctors. And I never take that for granted because I thought my legs would be full of marks for the rest of my life. And mm. I was okay with that at the time. Because I had done my advocacy, I, I had grown with self-acceptance, but I, I still never expected that my advocacy would actually lead to my recovery, which is, which is pretty cool. So even yeah. if it's not perfect, I'm always, I've been a lot better than I was before 2015. And I think that everybody in Canada deserves that chance to to experience what I have. Yeah. And when you, and th this is more individual towards, towards you, um, what were, what were some of the things that you, uh, that you learned from people who are trained in, 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 in this, 
that were helpful for you to, um, to, to find, uh, recovery? Uh, well, the interesting thing, um, I'll just talk a little bit about the therapy I went through. Mm -hmm. I expected when I went into the therapy with Karen Pickett, that we'd go through like all the things that traumatized me as a kid and all the bad things that happened as a teenager. And I thought it would kind of go like that, just with that talk therapy and deconstructing that. Nope. We just went straight to the behavior. So it started off with, with logging with these logging sheets of uh, that ask questions like, you know, what were you thinking at the time that you gave into the behavior and just things like that so that you can, figure out what your patterns are and and how to intervene in those patterns like if you're a picker when you're at the computer then maybe it'd be good to have some type of fidget toy right there like maybe a fit like a fidget cube or something like it's called a snake to just play with instead of going at your own body mm -hmm. so there's strategies like that there's also blockers and barriers you can use like mm. Uh, one thing I do in specifically, I have in my bathroom, there's three lights and I only have one light bulb in it. And it's like a 40 watt instead of like the 60 watt that I could take just so that I can't really see details when I'm walking by. Mm -hmm. And I do need to look in the mirror, like if I'm especially when I'm like brushing my teeth. Yeah. So things like that, like that's a more of a barrier but a blocker would be something like the, there's like zit stickers acne patches you can just put like a little round circle things on mm. triggering areas um you could also do it based on like on your fingers right at the source of the problem so you can put like there's these i think they're used for guitar you can put them on your fingers and they're just like little nubs or i guess kind of like thimbles yeah, if you yeah. think mm -hmm. about sewing or like the little plastic things you can put on your fingers there's more discreet things you can use like going back to like the fidget thing like spinner rings and a whole bunch of different sensory tactile items yeah. that really help the, the thing that really helped me the most is what's kind of hardest to put into content online like it's easy to say hey pick up a fidget toy to redirect but there's so much more that I like, obviously that was, did not help me to get into recovery before. Cause I knew those types of things, but the things that I didn't know was how to, how to really target my cognitive distortions and reframe them. And I guess kind of, well, I, I, yeah, I had to do all the logging first to be able to notice my patterns and then to really be able to to dig in. I had to learn what I was telling myself because it was such a fast. Sometimes it's such a fast reaction. I don't know what I'm thinking, mm. but with the more you log, the more you have to think about every action. And it is a pain in the ass to do. Mm. It is grueling. And there were times that I was like kind of trying to not pick on her. I was allowed to pick during the first week. But I was trying not to because I didn't want to have to go record it. Yeah, right, <laughs> so I was right, like right. trying like, to play kind of mind games with myself. But another thing, though, that's really important and the hardest part of recovery for me personally, and I think it's because of the high anxiety, is mindfulness. Um, yeah, yeah. Kind of going back to, to that conversation, doing body scans and meditations, they may feel good after you do them, but if you... To, to actually get the motivation to slow your mind down really, really is hard for me to do. Um, mm. 
I don't know if it's because I have like a bit of a hypervigilant state um, that very hard to just kind of calm down from, but it is so crucial to be able to, to bring down your baseline anxiety through mindful practices. Even if you do like 10 minutes a day of something that's, that's mindful, that you're focused on yourself, because I think in some ways the, the trance like state from picking goes into into like um, it's almost like the toxic version of meditativeness mm. is engaging in bfrbs so to be able to bring down your baseline anxiety you also are able to easier challenge the cognitive distortions because you're able to recognize them because you're more mindful of them mm -hmm. and i mean it can be certainly annoying it's a shift to have to analyze every single thing like i analyze everything but to analyze my bfrb took something out of me like it it exhausted me it's, it's not easy to do to be able to challenge it but it was what i needed to do on top of bringing down my baseline anxiety that really helped when mm. it came to that and also there's like a lot of different things that i learned about feelings and emotions themselves like i learned that you can overcome an urge whereas i'd been picking for so long if i had an urge i always gave in i stopped years ago trying to I stopped trying to stop because I knew I felt like it was absolutely fruitless and I I did kind of have have that kind of view like a defeatist attitude on it and I just really want people to know that any little bit of effort they put into reducing their BFRB isn't a waste so even though I didn't before I now know that all those things, it does add up to yeah. even just reduced behavior. Again, progress over perfection. So mm -hmm. to try to utilize all these things is really important. And I think it's needed in a comprehensive program like the one I had to be able to learn how to manage the compulsions. And then mm -hmm. in return, the compulsions are less frequent and less intense. Yeah. Fantastic. Angela, um, thank you. Uh, for folks who aren't aware, BFRB Awareness Week is this week, uh, October 1st to 7th. Um, so if you're listening to this right now, uh, or at least within the week that it's come out, uh, share this episode with someone that you know. Uh, help us spread Angela's word. Um, uh, the website is www.skinpickingsupport.com. Uh, Angela, you're on uh, Instagram as well, right? What's the what's the Instagram handle for uh, for skin picking support? It is surprisingly skin picking support. Easy, <laughs> easy, easy. Uh, Angela, <laughs> thank you so much for for taking time out of your schedule today to sit down with us and give us some insight into your life. Um, again, you know, you're doing really important work, and it's it's a really like you know the the part that I love the most about this conversation is that you know, through your own advocacy, you were able to find yourself in a position where you found a place in recovery. And there's, there's something really admirable about that. And so uh, kudos to you. And uh, this, this conversation Thank really, you. really does mean a lot. Thanks. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much for having me. This is so important. And I know this is going to reach a lot of people and bring them out of the darkness that they're feeling because a lot of people still just feel like they're so alone in these behaviors and don't even know to look it up because it's just something they feel like they do themselves. Mm. So to be able to hear a podcast of 
someone else's experience I know will really reach people and I'm really grateful for this opportunity so thank you all again yeah thanks That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even Better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.